Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about agriculture and medicine with an emphasis on biotechnology and the new technologies that can improve things for people and the planet. My name's Kevin Folda. I'm a professor, but I'm also a podcast host. And today we're going to talk about COVID-19. We're going to continue our discussion around this extremely important topic. Buckle yourselves in because I think this is a really edgy topic and I, it embodies the big thinking that I really think will take us forward as we turn the corner from this episode. So we're speaking with Dr. Hanu Rahaniemi. I think I got that right. Uh, he's the CEO and co-founder of Helix Nano. And there are, he's originally a theoretical physicist by training. And welcome very much to the podcast. It's good to have you on. Thank you, Kevin. Very happy to be here. And, and I've been looking forward to this all week because it started with your article in Medium. And really what it calls for is initiation of a SARS-CoV-2 Manhattan Project. How do we develop a vaccine on a short time scale? And I love this idea because every single model and every single prediction and every single pundit out there at least has some sense of a common denominator that a vaccine will be part of the solution. But, you know, you're a theoretical physicist by training. So how did you get to thinking about vaccines? Um, so it was a long road, uh, but I'll uh, outline some of the steps. Uh, so after doing my PhD in string theory at the University of Edinburgh, uh, I started a previous company which uh, focused on data science and AI. Um, and um, along the way, I got very interested in synthetic biology uh, as a, a subject, first intellectually, as I saw the exciting things happening with DNA sequencing and DNA synthesis. And then from also from a personal perspective, I... Um, lost my mom to metastatic uh, breast cancer. And uh, that was a frustrating experience because I could see what therapeutic developments there were in the horizon, but obviously it was too late to help her. Um, but I wanted to make a, a difference for uh, some of those other patients. And uh, I ended up co-founding Helix Nano with uh, Nikolai Eroshenko, who uh, did his PhD with George Church at Harvard Medical School. And uh, worked on DNA synthesis uh, methods and uh, genome engineering tools. And uh, so together for the last uh, few years, we have been developing um, a, a messenger RNA technology stack for cancer therapeutics and cancer vaccines. And um, we had um, a, before the crisis started, we had a cancer vaccine project uh, funded by uh, one of Eric Schmidt's philanthropic uh, vehicles, Schmidt Futures. Uh, one big problem, of course, with cancer is that uh, it also evolves um, to, to escape drugs and to escape our immune system. So um, with neoantigen cancer vaccines, where you try to identify mutations in cancer cells that are visible to the immune system, the challenge is that even if you find some good targets for the immune system, the cancer may evolve away from them. And... Um, 
another challenge is this um, uh, common phenomenon with all vaccines, actually, um, called immunodominance, where your vaccine really only generates a response against to a single prominent antigen, uh, even if your vaccine contains multiple antigens. Uh, due to competition between uh, the uh, immune cells uh, for access to antigen-presenting cells, amongst other reasons. Um, so that was a problem we wanted to overcome to make cancer vaccines work better. And, uh, and we came up with some messenger RNA-based ideas to, to do that, so to be able to target multiple antigens on, uh, uh, on cancer cells. And then as the um, COVID-19 pandemic broke out, uh, we realized that there was a risk uh, of SARS-CoV-2 evolving as well. Um, now, at the moment, we know that it's uh, evolving more slowly than uh, the flu, for example, but uh, it is definitely mutating. And uh, there have been variants discovered recently that do seem to be functionally different uh, already uh, from uh, the most common strain. So uh, I think that risk is still there. Um, so, as you said, uh, to get out of the current crisis, uh, vaccines do need to be part of the solution. Um, but if SARS-CoV-2 really evolves rapidly, um, the first batch of vaccines might end up being uh, ineffective, or we might end up in this flu-like situation where we have to be vaccinated again uh, every year, uh, on and on. Well, I guess the next question really is, is that it seems like there's a number of groups around the world in China and, uh, you know, Baylor um, with Peter Hotez and other groups that are working diligently on trying to come up with a vaccine. I think one from Oxford, and it seems like everybody's making some progress. So what are the current time projections for the traditional development of a vaccine? Um, now, of course, traditionally, vaccines take many years to develop. So uh, I think the Ebola vaccine uh, was seen as uh, very rapid. Uh, it only took five years. Uh, at the moment, uh, a lot of experts are quoting 12 to 18 months timeline, timelines uh, to accommodate uh, large phase three safety studies. Um, the bar for uh, safety for vaccines, of course, is much higher than for therapeutics because you are giving it to, in this case, potentially hundreds of millions or billions of healthy people. Um, so at least the traditional view has been that even those 12 to 18 month timelines might be uh, unrealistic if we stick to our uh, current way of evaluating vaccine safety and uh, our process of developing vaccines. Well, with the current guidelines and you know policy that as it stands, we're losing ground with human lives. You know, there's still people who are dying every single day of this. And people are saying, well, yeah, the curve is kind of flat, but that's still 2,000 people a day in the U.S. that are dying because of this. And there's a huge economic impact. So what are some of the you know, ways this is being measured currently? And really the reason why we need vaccines, like, like why do we need to have a vaccine as part of this equation? Um, well, I, I think one reason to have a vaccine uh, in the first place is that the alternatives uh, really are not good enough, Kevin. Uh, we might get therapeutics that will save lives, but um, will still may still require hospitalizations. And that means that we would have to continue social distancing to manage uh, our healthcare resource capacity. Um, if we want to 
eradicate this through purely a social distancing based solution. Uh, there's been some analysis done using uh, other human coronaviruses as a benchmark, which would indicate that we would get multiple waves over more than two years. Uh, and continuing shutdowns over, over such a long period of time uh, uh, seems untenable. Um, and um, we may be able to contain some localized outbreaks with uh, very widespread testing and targeted quarantines. But for that, we really need very frequent retesting, essentially of the entire population. Uh, very, very accurate uh, contact tracing and uh, restricting people's movements. Um, and a challenge there, Kevin, may be that um, we do know that as many as 60% of uh, SARS-CoV-2 infected people may be asymptomatic. Uh, so, um, so doing this kind of targeted Tra track trace and uh, contain uh, style operations may be very very challenging in a large geography like like the US. Uh, and then, of course, that's even without getting into the very complex topic of uh, are we willing to sacrifice privacy even uh, further than we've already given it away to to uh, the big tech companies and what the uh, implications of centralized government monitoring of uh, uh, every single human contact would be. No, that's a really good point. But, you know, that's what's so strange about this whole situation is that I think it was Anthony Fauci who said, we're building the plane as we're flying it, you know. <laughs> and how do we get from here to a vaccine? And really, it will we just achieve herd immunity in that meantime? I guess that's what's happening in Sweden, right? You're, you see uh, people are just getting the infection at a limited rate all the time not everybody at once. So it's presenting gradually to the healthcare system. And, you know, it's when you're talking 12, 18 months, you know, won't everybody have some exposure at that point? Uh, so that's certainly not the case in most countries yet. Uh, it's, it's interesting to also look at the um, death toll in, in Sweden compared to neighboring Finland, uh, where I'm from. Uh, and I believe currently it's something like uh, 2,000 deaths, over 2,000 deaths in Sweden, a country of uh, 8 million people. Um, and I think Finland is below 100 deaths. So Finland has implemented social distancing measures. Um, the, other, the other question with herd immunity is actually, will it be lasting? Um, one um, big question mark around uh, SARS-CoV-2 is, uh, does exposure actually give you long-term immunity. That doesn't seem to be the case with many coronaviruses where you actually uh, lose neutralizing antibodies against the virus uh, quite rapidly. So um, relying on herd immunity might result in the situation where we get uh, a uh, very flu-like seasonal COVID, uh, which, is, which is obviously going to be much more lethal uh, than the flu. So we have to decide whether we are going to be okay with that or not. Um, and with that would come regular societal shutdowns with their, again, additional economic burden and uh, as well as loss of life. So that doesn't seem like a very bright future to me personally. Well, we also have the opportunity to develop, say, therapeutic drugs that could complement or maybe even replace a vaccine. So why is a vaccine even necessary when you could potentially come up with drugs that could 
solve the problem and then couple that to social dis- distancing and testing. You know, is there really room to do this without a vaccine? Um, I think we would have to uh, push those therapeutics pretty far to be able to to do that. So um, the only scenario, so I think uh, we absolutely need therapeutics to treat uh, treat sick, pe- sick people. Um, but at, at least at our current stage, um, those uh, drugs would be more deployed uh, in a hospital setting. So we would still need to, uh, as you say, couple that to social distancing to manage uh, manage the um, uh, load on the healthcare system. Uh, there might be opportunities to use uh, drugs like monoclonal antibodies uh, to give very uh, small uh, high-risk groups like the elderly uh, short or, or the healthcare workers some short-term protection. Uh, but... I don't think that is necessarily a long-term solution. I don't think we can give give people uh, IVs of monoclonal antibodies uh, for uh, you know uh, an indefinite period into the future future either. So um, I do think that um, a vaccine is a solution that uh, we should really embrace here, and uh, um, whether and I think we should do that uh, in a time scale that. Uh, uh, is faster than what we're anticipating. I mean, the the economic cost uh, alone seems worth worth it. I mean, at the moment, uh, getting a vaccine even six months six months earlier would be worth six point four trillion dollars as we uh, in terms of lost GDP growth. So, or regained GDP growth rather. So, uh, even uh, if we have to pay ten billion dollars for a vaccine, it seems like a very cheap uh, price to pay for that. Yeah, and I guess I really hope you understand. I'm just throwing at you a lot of um, devil's advocate kind of questions because I agree with you a thousand percent. I I don't think that uh, the current system could handle just everybody returning to normal. And I do really believe in this idea of the second peak that would come if we just released everybody, you know, take off your masks and have at it, you know. And when I think about the idea of a vaccine, it seems to be the best solution going forward. We're speaking with Dr. Hanu Rayaniemi. He's a theoretical physicist. He's the CEO and co-founder of Helix Nano. And we'll be back in just a moment with his idea of how we might be able to solve the problem of getting a vaccine faster. We'll be back in just a moment. Since its beginning, almost five years ago, this podcast has served to target misinformation about science while inspiring application of new technologies. The current COVID-19 crisis was a shock and woke a wave of instant experts that can armchair quarterback a solution for you that defies the guidance of actual authorities. Now, I don't know about yours, but my Facebook thread is a steaming stream of conspiracy and miracle cures. I thought this pandemic would bring us closer to science when actually it stirred the desire to shun those that actually know best. What do those eggheads know anyway? We can think of it as pandemic Dunning-Kruger, a pandemic, if you will. The people that understand viruses, vaccines, and epidemiology the least are the most confident in their errant positions. They also seem to dominate the communication space. So it's up to you, 
not only to learn as much as you can about the situation, but then immerse yourself into the discussion. Use social media to share good stories, quality podcasts, and solid science. Engage the pseudo-experts in their false bravado. Remind everyone that this is a time of uncertainty and it's best navigated by scientists at the helm. Not preachers, television pundits, militia dudes, your aunt, or even political leadership. Turn them all off and listen to credible experts that have dedicated their lives to public health. Identify and share good media. That's our role. To give you something to share as you engage those that believe they know the answers when actually nobody does. And good scientists admit that. The best way to find answers faster is to rely on the skilled and steady hand of scientific expertise. And that's what we'll continue to bring you here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And now we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast. We're speaking with Dr. Hanu Rayaniemi. He's the CEO and co-founder of Helix Nano. We're speaking about the Vaccine Manhattan Project. And in the first part of the uh, podcast, we spoke about the relevance of a vaccine as opposed to therapeutics and social distancing and all the other ways that we've attempted to mitigate the penetration of SARS-CoV-2. And so now we're going to talk about this idea of the Vaccine Manhattan Project. And I love this idea. So what was the spirit intent of the original Manhattan Project? The original Manhattan Project, of course, was a um, military uh, operation uh, in response to a, an existential challenge, where uh, in that case, the existential challenge was uh, the Nazi Germany developing uh, an atomic bomb uh, before the U.S. was able to. And um, the approach taken was to essentially try to eliminate as much as technical of, of the technical risk uh, in the project as possible uh, by this very massively paralyzed approach where uh, every problem that was identified was being solved uh, simultaneously uh, in, in parallel in multiple ways. The Manhattan Project developed multiple ways for enriching uh, uranium, plus one additional way of uh, enriching plutonium. Uh, there were several bomb designs. There were several several approaches to to modeling the explosives and explosions and so on, uh, as well as uh, really a massive investment in uh, enabling infrastructure uh, that uh, then allowed the uh, project to be scaled very rapidly and. Um, and it was also this kind of let's build uh, a plane in midair uh, kind of situation uh, in an unprecedented way. Um, and it ended up being uh, very successful. Now, um, obviously, that was in uh, this very warlike context. So now the question is, can we do the same for uh, in the context of healthcare in in peacetime? Although, although the current situation we are in does resemble a war with this very... Uh, uh, prevalent invisible enemy. Um, so what we are ca calling for is a Manhattan Project-like approach where we radically upgrade uh, both the uh, core vaccine technologies that we will throw at this, as well as the methods, the infrastructure, 
and clinical trial designs of how we actually assess vaccine safety. Well, what are the current steps if you want to have a vaccine developed through research and then taking it through clinical trials? Like what has to happen now? So what is, of course, already happening uh, all around the world, I think now up to 90 uh, different individual projects, is that um, you have to choose which part of the virus you're going to target um, or whether you're going to use uh, an attenuated virus as your vaccine. So there's the vaccine design question. There is the question of how you're going to present your antigen to the immune system. Are you, are you, is it going to be some version of the virus itself? Will it be purified protein? Uh, are you going to use mRNA uh, like we are or, or DNA to encode the antigen and make, your, make the patient's own cells make it? Uh, so you have to figure that out. Uh, you have to test it in animal models, uh, although some, some of the uh, players now in the clinic have actually skipped that step um, and gone straight to humans. You have to figure out how to scale up manufacturing. You have to then engage uh, in a series of clinical trials, starting with phase one, which is just looking at safety in healthy subjects, phase two, uh, efficacy in a larger group of, of patients, and then finally, um, both safety and efficacy in phase three in an even, even larger uh, group of people. And um, so one reason why we think um, a centrally led uh, Manhattan-like project would be more efficient, uh, first of all, than uh, this, this sort of uh, separate uh, individual vertically integrated companies working on this is really that uh, each company has their own strengths and weaknesses. And um, some might be stronger in some aspects of the pipeline I just described uh, than others. So a centrally led project could pick and choose uh, the best solution from from each each company, and also uh, try to solve all these problems simultaneously and in parallel. So you you should be able to get a massive speed up just from that. Um, but really, the big problem is the safety part, um, and the question there is why why do vaccines take so long to develop? And the main reason is that. Um, the bar for vaccine safety is very high because you will end up giving them to healthy people. And uh, there are some quite serious uh, but extremely rare uh, adverse effects that uh, vaccines can have. So the standard approach has been to monitor uh, a large uh, cohort in a clinical trial for a long time, uh, up to two years or more, to see if these adverse effects occur. Yeah. So how do you collapse that though? I mean, safety is really important and you're talking about a six month time frame. So how do you take, you know, the very rigorous approach to a safety um, analysis and break that down into a much smaller window? Uh, that is really the key question uh, for this whole project. Um, and the answer we are proposing um, for the Manhattan project is that it's not unknown what the possible uh, adverse effects for vaccines are. Um, and you can uh, break them down uh, into a few clear categories. There are um, 
again, very rare, uh, some acute reactions, anaphylaxis-style reactions uh, to the antigen itself or, or adjuvants used in the vaccine. So those are things you can spot very quickly already in uh, phase one trials. Um, the more tricky ones are um, vaccine-induced allergies or autoimmune diseases. Uh, and those are the, really the, the ones that um, uh, people are watching for for years in, in trials. But um, now we have developed uh, proteomics technology to the point where um, it should be possible to see early signs uh, of those types of events uh, very early um, in, uh, in patients. So instead of waiting for two years, um, you could look at... Uh, antibodies from uh, patients, uh, patients sera and try to identify if they have any autoantibodies, for example, um, using proteome protein arrays or mass spectrometry. Um, and these kinds of things have already been used to, to diagnose autoimmune diseases. And you could set the bar very high um, if you see anything at all, uh, even, even uh, signals that you might not completely understand that, are, that might not be very strong. Uh, you could use that as sufficient grounds to to reject that vaccine candidate. Um, so you might actually uh, that way be able to prevent these these uh, adverse effects that um, patients would be exposing themselves to in a phase three trial uh, before before they even happen. Uh, and then you could, of course, uh, uh, even after vaccine approval, uh, use use the same kinds of assays to for continued monitoring. So. Uh, so it could be that if we if we embrace the need to do this very fast, we might also be able to do it uh, more safely than we have in the past. I guess one part of vaccine safety that I never really thought about until now is, is safety predicated on the rare event where somebody has a, an unusual allele, so a genetic variant that causes them to have a reaction? Or is it something that, like, how... Is that what we're looking for when we're talking about safety is how do you pr provide a vaccine that works for everybody without a rare, you know, problem? Is that what we're looking at? Uh, now, obviously, we, we would like to, to provide uh, a universal vaccine. In the cancer context, we are actually able to, to personalize vaccines to, to each individual's uh, tumor, but I don't think it's possible here. So, I, so I think I think that's right. So we, we do need to to, um, and I guess it's that that's something we may not fully understand. What predisposes you uh, to those rare adverse effects? Effects, but I don't think we need to know that here. We just need to be able to spot them, uh, spot signs of those adverse events very early, uh, and then uh, make sure we only focus on vaccine candidates that do work very broadly across the population without any safety risks. Yeah, I guess I'm really naive in this regard because, you know, it seems like vaccines are really well understood and we know how they work. We know, you know, what antibodies are, how they're uh, induced with respect to an antigenic challenge. And so these things generally are safe and effective. So what are some of the things that could go wrong that you might monitor for? Um, probably the trickiest part uh, that... Um could go wrong, uh, which um, may be actually a significant risk for many of the leading vaccine candidates currently is a phenomenon called antibody-dependent enhancement. Um, 
what that means is that either antibodies are generated in a patient either from a previous infection or from a vaccine uh, actually make uh, the viral infection worse. Um, and there are several mechanisms through which uh, this can happen. Um, and those mechanisms are not completely understood. But um, an example is if you imagine uh, uh, that your immune system generates uh, an antibody that does not neutralize the virus, um, so uh, it doesn't bind to, for example, the uh, RBD domain uh, that the virus uses to, to bind to the relevant receptor in our cells and enter cells, uh, but instead just binds, binds uh, some other non-critical part of the virus. Now you have created a virus which has uh, the antibody tail, the so-called uh, FC domain, sticking out of the virus. And many cells in our bodies have uh, uh, receptors for uh, antibody tails for FC domains. So you now have given the virus uh, a new type of cells uh, it can potentially infect. Um, and for example, with the previous uh, uh, previous major coronavirus uh, outbreak with SARS-CoV-1, uh, it seems seemed like um, um, antibody-dependent enhancement can happen and enable the virus to infect macrophages, for example. Um, so, um, uh, and we still don't know whether this happens uh, with SARS-CoV-2. And uh, it's quite hard to tell because um, you might, if, if, you, if you don't know that you're looking for this, um, an ADE-driven uh, infection might just look like a very severe uh, COVID-19 case. So to detect that, you would then uh, really need to do uh, deep uh, immunoprofiling, uh, carry out, uh, uh, and I think we still need to do some very basic science uh, on um, uh, using, using patient sera to see whether this is actually, actually happening and, uh, and figure out how we could detect this very, very early. So what has to happen for a vaccine Manhattan project to really initiate? Um, so I think we need um, a budget of the order of $10 billion. We need uh, a core leadership with um, uh, the right kind of experience. And we think that um, what might serve this kind of project better on the leadership side is actually um, a, a leader uh, or a set of leaders who bring very strong uh, technical program management experience from an organization like DARPA which, of course, uh, um, fed upon or retained uh, a lot of the institutional knowledge from the original Manhattan Project. Um, and the reason for that is that we, we think the challenge is really integrating all these different parts together, uh, not so much necessarily the, the core biopharma expertise, which uh, some of the performers will obviously bring. Um, another element is uh, a framework that... Um, provides the right incentives for all the participants so that any company or an academic group can, can jump in. And uh, you also need, uh, you, you need both a stick and a carrot. Um, a stick uh, could be something like uh, an obligatory licensing agreement that if you, if you develop some technology under this project, uh, you have to provide it as, as part of the, uh, the end solution and, and you're not allowed to hold the project back. And then of course, there's many carrots uh, in terms of uh, uh, investment into these companies, uh, uh, smaller companies getting access to clinical development pipelines, larger companies getting access to novel technology, and so on. So, um, 
So those are those are all, all, all elements that uh, need to be in place. And then finally, um, the their this whole group has to coordinate with uh, an FDA or or the European equivalent EMA um, to evaluate and develop all these novel clinical trial designs that we were talking about. Well, this is what I really appreciated about your entire article. It says we have to do it in a new way and it has to be done in a faster way. And that's where this idea of a vaccine Manhattan project really fits the model of, you know, let's, let's just break all the rules and do it better and, and safer and faster. And so how is this kind of idea and this kind of thinking, this kind of big, fast thinking actually improving say the, the safety of all vaccines or any therapy, you know, how can, how can this kind of model be applied to anything? Um, so that's a great question, uh, Kevin. So I think the consequences of doing this for COVID-19 could really catalyze an entirely uh, new ecosystem of vaccine development. Um, if we do this once, if we do, if we put this clinical trial evaluation framework in place, um, if we uh, develop all the manufacturing capability needed to roll out um, vaccines using mo novel modalities like uh, proteins, DNA, mRNA, then uh, every therapeutic will benefit from that. Um, so you will have, have created a way for us to, to de develop new vaccine applications, um, not just for the next pandemic, but for, for cancer vaccines or, or uh, people have been proposing uh, for many years vaccine applications for neurodegenerative diseases. That's not been, uh, there hasn't been a framework before to make that possible. So there could be just enormous public health benefits. Uh, in a way, it feels like vaccines are the unsung heroes of biotechnology and we just uh, really haven't been sufficiently motivated to, to uh, push on them as, as hard as, let's say, uh, um, expensive, very expensive cancer therapeutics for uh, a small group of patients. Well, I think I look at this and I think this is just one way for us to say, how do we respond to a problem, you know, a, an existential threat in a different way? How do we break all the rules, the slow, methodical, horrible way government did things in the past? And how do we do it in, at the speed of science? How do we accelerate this so that everybody can go as fast as we can go with safety as being you know, the major guideline? And I think that rethinking is really good. So what are some of the other potential collateral benefits? So things like, um, well, you can tell me, I, what are some of the other ways in which this kind of parallelizing, rethinking, uh, streamlining, what are some other benefits that we might find from that? So um, thinking beyond um, the uh, some of the um, things I mentioned, uh, Kevin, uh, imagine that we do this and we, uh, we have uh, the project team that pulls this off, this network of uh, collaborators that all come together to solve this existential problem. Uh, that'll be a new ecosystem. Um, that'll be um, a uh, just like the um, the original Manhattan Project led to the formation of um, many many groups where um, the people who had gone through the experience went on to to create institutions and companies that uh, had some of that that spade, same mentality. The same could happen here, and in effect, we could end up with uh, a a true biotech Silicon Valley. Um, although it might not be located in Silicon Valley, it could be distributed across the country. Um, 
building the manufacturing capability across these these new types of vaccines uh, could create new hubs of biotech manufacturing. So imagine uh, biotech Detroit's in non-coastal states. Um, we already talked about um, the um, speed speed up and uh, for new vaccine applications, but um, the that manufacturing capability could also really radically reduce the cost of uh, cutting edge therapeutics, nucleic acids or, or, or proteins, um, and um, which would have direct impact on uh, access, uh, both in the US and globally, to the most cutting edge therapies. Like, like gene, gene therapies at the moment have uh, uh, very high, uh, up to a million or more price tags. So um, people, uh, many people do not have access to anything like that. But if we suddenly have to create the infrastructure to, if, if let's say the leading leading vaccine ends up being uh, a, um, a viral vector, um, we might end, end up um, having the capability to um, produce hundreds of millions of uh, uh, viral uh, vector doses at a very low cost. I guess that's the other big question is, you know, how much is of this is scaling a solution once it's been found? Yeah, so you you come up with a good, you know, mixture of antigens that can induce the immune response. How do you scale it? And how do you do that fast in a wartime level? I think you do all the scaling in parallel. So this is already uh, what Bill Gates, for example, has uh, uh, has committed to to doing, which is um, you could take the key modalities, you could take a guess at, let's say, the top five or six or seven uh, types of vaccines that uh, you might have, and you build all that capability in parallel. Um, now, I, I, I do, do think that, um, especially if it turns out the case that um, uh, natural uh, recovery from SARS-CoV-2 infection doesn't give you lasting immunity, we do need some significant technology development as well um, that has to happen very rapidly. For example, we might have to develop novel adjuvants that really uh, you know, break that uh, six-month immunity mark that, that uh, has, has been seen for some coronaviruses. And, uh, but that can uh, happen while uh, the, those manufacturing plants are already being built that will able to be able to deploy the uh, modality that, that that vaccine will eventually use. It seems like there's a lot of value just in exercising the thinking about the process that you've proposed, because I don't think that SARS-CoV-2 is the last one. And, you know, something like this could have tremendous benefit in terms of thinking about how we would respond to, say, a bioterrorist attack, where all of a sudden a new, you know, version of smallpox or Ebola or or whatever. And there's all kinds of interesting diseases that are kind of in the background right now, like, uh, you know, Zika we haven't heard about in a while. And all of these things are kind of on the cusp. And so how much do you think that a Manhattan Project should be done just because how it would fortify our thinking and our infrastructure to respond to any threat? Okay, and to address the bioterror point, if I was a bad actor uh, somewhere in the world, uh, thinking thinking about uh, doing people harm, um, I would certainly be looking at the U.S. response to uh, this crisis so far and uh, thinking that hmm, this this country looks vulnerable to a uh, bioterror vector. So 
if instead we come together and uh, uh, roll out with a uh, next generation solution um, in uh, in the order of six months, then uh, that might mel- well make those bad actors think twice. And then, um, of course, as you say, uh, there are many, many uh, other zoonotic uh, viruses out there, other coronaviruses and beyond, um, of, of which uh, SARS-CoV-2 is... Uh, certainly not the last and uh, probably not the worst. So having all this capability in place to rapidly respond to that uh, would be enormously powerful. Um, Not to mention the fact that if we really make a breakthrough in next generation vaccine technologies, we could could also address some of the problems we currently have, like like influenza, uh, where, um, where if we had... Let's say we make a breakthrough that uh, involves, for example, a very broad T cell response to to um, many viruses simultaneously uh, under the Manhattan Project. That could be a path to a pan flu vaccine that could save, you know, another uh, half a million lives each year easily. And I, I think that's a really important part of this entire discussion because I feel that we were kind of caught off guard, and I was a little bit surprised that DARPA or the Defense Department didn't have a very integrated and, uh, you know, a, immediate response to, well, just another one of those viruses, you know. I thought this would be like uh, something that was in the playbook already. And so I really agree with you. I think this is something that doing this right right now really prevents a bad actor or another zoonotic event from having the same kind of economic impact. And, you know, it's been a really fascinating discussion. So what do you think has to happen to initiate this kind of response? Do you think this is something that's, you know, even though it would be a bargain for the government at this point, do you think it's something that could realistically happen? Uh, Well, Kevin, um, I don't know if you saw it, but uh, today Bloomberg released an article about uh, a uh, uh, government-led project called Operation Warp Speed, that is apparently aiming to uh, cut that 12 to 18 months timeline significantly. Um, now, any details of that plan have not yet been disclosed or how it's going to be structured, but um, there does seem to be will to uh, uh, rewrite the rule book and try try something really new. So, uh, so I think it could well be very realistic. Well, that, that's great news because it's the old thinking that gets us into the problem and the old solutions that, you know, when you look at the political solutions that have gone on and the economic policies that have gone on, you know, we can talk about that all day. I think that we need to revise our thinking. And I love that about your article. It's thinking big, thinking fast, and thinking of ways to streamline things to do the most as quickly as we can. And so I, I, that's why I really wanted to have you on. If people wanted to learn more about your company or you know learn more about what you do, where would they look? Uh, so you can visit our website, which will have a link also to the uh, proposal at helixnano.com. So that's H-E-L-I-X-N-A-N-O.com. Uh, same handle on Twitter, uh, at helixnano. Uh, I am also on Twitter uh, at... Hannu at H A N N U, my first name. So um, please do reach out if you think you can help. 
Awesome. Well, I, I've really enjoyed reading your work and getting to know you a little bit through uh, through this process. And I wish you all the best in the world. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, so thank you very much, uh, Dr. Hanu Rayaniemi. And thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me, Kevin. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. Write a review on iTunes. Uh, show us a little love on Patreon. That's great, too. Uh, the fact that I've got a producer now really helps things. And we've even paid to have the logo redesigned. So check that out. Uh, we really appreciate your support. Thank you very much for uh, joining us on the Talking Biotech podcast. And we'll talk to you again next week. The Talking Biotech podcast presents the personal views of Dr. Kevin Falta and its guests. These are not the views of the University of Florida, its faculty, staff, or students. Comment on today's episode on the Talking Biotech Facebook page. Send comments and suggestions to kevinfolta at gmail.com. And remember, tell a friend, write a review, or float us a little love over on the Patreons. Your support will directly translate into this podcast and broadening science education efforts everywhere. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, Scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at collabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.